0: Welcome back to the 10 Blocks podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Coming up on today's show, my colleague Seth Barron talks with the longtime contributing editor and friend of City Journal, social theorist Joel Kotkin. Joel's essay in our forthcoming issue is called China's Urban Crisis. We're going to preview the piece with a conversation on today's podcast. Speaking of the magazine, our listeners will be happy to know that the spring 2019 issue should be arriving in your mailbox over the next several weeks. In the issue, we have all sorts of fascinating things. Kay Heimowitz on the plague of loneliness, Ed Glazer on the millennial attraction to socialism, John Tierney on how technology could transform the way Americans buy prescription drugs, and lots, lots more. Lastly, if you don't already, make sure you follow us on Instagram. You can find us there, at cityjournal underscore mi. That's it for me. The conversation between Seth Barron and Joel Cockin begins after this.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to 10 Blocks, the podcast of City Journal. This is your host for today, Seth Barron, Associate Editor for City Journal. Joel Kotkin is a contributing editor at City Journal and the Presidential Fellow in Urban Futures at Chapman University and Executive Director of the Center for Opportunity Urbanism. His latest piece in the spring issue of City Journal is called China's Urban Crisis. Thanks for joining us, Joel. That's my pleasure. So China has the world's largest economy now, and it's growing at a rapid clip. So what's the crisis? Well, first of all, it, w- there's a lot of debate whether it's actually the
2: largest economy, but but it's certainly now the second largest economy for sure. Um, well, the crisis is um, that, first of all, that large economy is spread over a much larger population, so it's not nearly as affluent. But also, it's an economy that's grown very, very rapidly. And Oddly enough, for a socialist country, um, in a very unequal way, um, with some of the worst aspects of capitalist development that you could ever imagine. Such as? Well, for instance, you have an enormous population, 400 million people living in rural China who are basically poor. You have these um, people who do not have uh, permits to live in, in the urban centers. And fortunately, uh, I have Chinese friends who snuck me into these places. And, you know, they are just, like, not too different from a favela in uh, um, in, in Brazil. There are just huge concentrations of poor people. As my uh, a very g- a good author on China, uh, Li Sun, mentions, um, she said China's wealth has been based on the sweat of a working class that's been exploited.
1: Uh, that does seem a little... Uh Disconsonant with Mao's vision of how China was supposed to be, you know. Well, of course, Mao's vision was really a—I mean,
2: not you know, obviously mad, a bit of a madman, but but Mao's vision was obviously somewhat more egalitarian and also much more based in rural uh, China as opposed to being a heavily urbanized China. So I think that 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 um, this is something that uh, I think Mao would be turning over in his grave. But you know, in many ways. Um, it it is borrowing from some of the worst aspects of Maoism increasingly these days, with uh, very uh, strong surveillance, very much a a kind of dominant uh, sort of uh, a communist ideology that's being rammed into people, um, and surveillance technology which um, our friends at Google uh, could only dream of.
1: So I, I I seem to remember it used to be that China had a one-child policy because they wanted to control their exploding population. And they were sort of praised for this. But now it seems like, for, at least from what your article says, the country doesn't have enough children. So well, what happened? Well, you know,
2: I could understand from Deng Xiaoping's point of view, uh, given that, that when he took power um, in, uh, um, in, the, in the 90s, you know, and he looked around and he saw, here's this country with this enormous population, um, that it was probably very scary. Um, uh, Mao had no concept of birth control, um, and so in many ways there was a um, there was probably a need to limit population size. But the one-child policy um, has created so many issues. Um, one of them, of course, is because of the preference for boys over girls. Um, over 30 million more boys than girls of marriageable age. So there's all sorts of social problems. Um, and, um, the thing that's really interesting and it's, it it goes to work I've done in Singapore and elsewhere is when you have a very expensive, very competitive, very dense, uh, society, which China now has in terms of strong urban concentration, people just don't have children, uh, particularly as people get educated, particularly women get educated. Um, they, they feel that they just can't afford to have children. I, when I work in China very often, I'll, I'll talk to, uh, uh, you know, translators and people who I'm working with and if they're female they say well I don't have time for kids I can't afford one um, and in that way it's very much like Taiwan it's very much like Hong Kong it's something that's spread throughout East Asia some of the lowest birth rates in the world now are in East Asia the fertility rate in Beijing and Shanghai is 0.8 which is almost a third of what it would take uh, to replace the population and there are not enough young children being born in the countryside to make up for it so china is going to have an enormous long-term problem right now they're in that period where they still have this large young active population that's part of their ascendancy has been that but in the next 10 20 30 years the number of retirees and the number uh, will grow and the number of workers will decline uh, we have some of the same problems, but a we have immigration to somewhat counteract it, and because America um, is a large country um, with with ample land and people can live in suburban houses and have babies, probably in a better
1: situation. So it sounds like China is facing the same sort of problem that Japan is, but I think you're talking about this it's this this issue of growing old before you get rich. Exactly.
2: My friend Ted Fishman's written about that quite a bit. It's it's a, a situation, Japan accumulated the wealth to pay for its retirement, if you will. And also Japan doesn't have hegemonic um, ambitions at this stage of its history. So it's it's willing to, to say, okay, we're just going to have a comfortable retirement. China not only has hegemonic uh, sentiments, but also um, it doesn't have enough money because it Um, It was poor for so long. It's not nearly as rich as Japan. Uh, And so um, they're going to have a very, very difficult time in the future, I would think.
1: Now, China has also gone from being a mostly rural country to largely urban, I think, much more quickly than any other society ever has. Yes. So... I would imagine that causes all kinds of social dislocation.
2: Well, there's the, this rapid urbanization has always caused disruption. I'm, you know, I'm a great fan of Engels' work on, uh, on the condition of the working class in England, and you, England was another society where this happened, and it created tremendous turmoil. It created turmoil in in this country as well, but America always had a little more land, uh, so it wasn't quite as dramatic, but. China has done it it's done it incredibly rapidly. It's gone from one of the least urbanized big societies in the world t- to one of the more urbanized
1: societies, and it's got a ways to go. So you you, you referenced this earlier, but you, in your piece, you talk about what sounds like illegal uh, a situation of like illegal immigration but internally yes so people move to the it sounds like millions of people have moved to the cities but they're not allowed to officially be there is that is that correct yes. what is what is life like for them well
2: it depends now i've known people for instance who are attorneys in beijing and they're they 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 don't have residence um, but they send the kids to private school and they go to private doctors and it's not so terrible but if you take a working class person from the countryside with, you know, who's doing manual labor, uh, their lives are very, very difficult. Um, and, and in many ways, um, the urban Chinese, from everything I'm looking at, don't really like having these people around, you know, very much reacting sometimes the way some Americans may react to all of a sudden, let's say, having a large population from Central America, all of a sudden in their neighborhood. They don't really like it very much. But the fact of the matter is, is as Lisan um, and others have pointed out, it is the muscle and the sweat and the hard work of of these Chinese uh, people from the countryside that have created the economic miracle.
1: But then you wind up with like a, a, a second class of citizens, I guess. I mean, do these can these people get medical care or education or
2: well, it depends. Um, there there are some attempts to try to do something about that. And there are some attempts on the part of the Chinese government to sort of bring industry out of the big cities and bring it into the more rural areas and maybe provide something more. But the, the pattern is so... Powerful the other direction, and and so I, I think a lot of these people do live kind of like some of our undocumented do. They live in a sort of netherworld. Um, the difference is the undocumented um, in our country are not American citizens. These people are fully Chinese citizens. They're Han Chinese. They you know they speak Chinese. They're Chinese culture, and yet they're second class citizens in the urban environment. And the policy of the Chinese government seems to be particularly with Beijing and Shanghai, is to create almost like glittering model cities, uh, which will be really for the middle class and the elites. And um, I'm a big fan of Chinese science fiction, and there's one uh, story called Folding Beijing in which the city, actually there are sort of three cities on the same space, and they, they rise and fall. There's a middle class city, there's a poor city, and a rich city. Um, one of the things that's very interesting in Chinese science fiction and, and also you find it in, in, in looking at Chinese society um, is how class-driven it is. Um, I mean it's, it's increasingly the case that those who rise up are the people connected to the Communist Party, um, are in the elites, um, and, you know, very much in, in the way that we might see in a, in a Western society – but obviously the Western society
1: doesn't pretend to be a social socialist egalitarian society. So what is I mean, for years I've heard about these basically these cities that, that China's built from the ground up from nothing that are, are intended to house millions of people and I don't know if they are yet or if they're not but from an urbanists perspective, what are these places like? are they pleasant are, I mean are these like Jane Jacobs's visions of of a, a an organic, I mean, it's, I guess not.
0: But
1: <laughs> I mean, what what is it like to be in these places? Well, I, you know, I'm, I have I haven't explored as some of my colleagues have
2: some of these these what they call ghost cities, and there's some debate about that. But I can tell you something. Um, even the years I've been going to China, and you know, I'm not, you know, I don't live there, and and so I, I, you know, I I, I can't pretend that I, you know, I I see every permutation. The Chinese cities that I see today are really unpleasant environments. In that they're not—it's not like they're dirty or the sewers don't work. In many cases, their infrastructure is better than ours. I mean, I have to say, Beijing may have better infrastructure than New York does, but uh, which probably wouldn't be that it's hard. It's not that hard. <laughs> but uh, and I and I won't speak for Los Angeles either. But but when you when you when you go into these cities, uniform high-rise buildings with you know with shopping malls and really not interesting places. And it's not that that's what the Chinese do naturally because in the United States, where do Chinese live? They move to the suburbs as fast as they can. Um, And in these little pockets that that have been preserved, some of the old parts of Beijing – and the foreign missions, let's say the uh, areas if I like can tangent, they're charming and they're wonderful urban neighbors with interesting restaurants and shops and people walking around. So it, but they're building a form of urbanism, which in many ways maybe is like the Hudson Yards. It's it's that kind of inhuman, yet you know, uh, gargantuan scale, um, which. It has no organic growth. What makes New York an attractive city, or Paris, where my wife's family is from, is is a uh, that it grew organically. Yes, New York became very built up, but it took over many many years. And so when you walk around, you can see a little pocket of something that used to exist, and maybe something that is still family owned. I mean, you you still have sarges. um you still have these little pieces of the old New York. Well, there's I'm, some
1: texture to it.
2: Exactly. I, that's exactly the word, texture. New York still has texture. I mean, places like Hudson Yards don't have texture, but yeah. but but the, these places really have texture. That texture's sort of gone in a place like Beijing. And it's interesting when you read the historical accounts Beijing was filled with these wonderful sort of courtyard houses, and there were there was sort of a, a, a liveliness to it. And I even witnessed some of it when I started going to China in the 80s um, with the beginnings of the reform period. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a very uh, – um, it, it was a very dynamic kind of environment, and now you have to, you, you, my Chinese friends have to find the little pieces that are still left, but the rest of it is this this monolithic, incredibly large-scale, uh, unappealing environment, and, and of course, one that doesn't encourage people to have children.
1: So you mentioned before something about the surveillance technology, and we hear a lot about this with facial recognition and. Uh, the use of social credit scores to, uh, you know, keep people off of trains if they said the wrong thing on the internet, or um, what is what is the state of surveillance technology in China? Where is it going, and how do all of these various social pressures, like where where are we headed? Where's China headed?
2: Well, I, we also have to ask the question: Are we headed in China's direction? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> but. Uh, the, certainly, um, now I have not been in, in Western China where this is at the most extreme level as a form of social control for the Muslim population. Um, I think you're really dealing with with a surveillance society, um, as David Lyon would put it. It's you know where basically the state f- uh, gives to itself the right to sort of know everything about you and to monitor everything as much as they possibly can. And if they could get inside your head and, and read your thoughts, they would do that too. And um, again, this is a big theme in Chinese science fiction. So, you know, what you find is that this thought control, which is well beyond anything that George Orwell could have ever thought about, it's probably a little bit closer to uh, Brave New World. Um, and, uh, you know, basically, as Huxley said, uh, the... Uh, if, if you married uh, technology to to repression it'd be very hard to reverse and so and and then at the other side the traditional constraints of society family various you know local traditions those get obliterated then the state really can step in and sort of manipulate the society manipulate what people think um, you know make it very difficult for people from uh, who are different and of course uh, increasingly as we're seeing um, uh, they can they can restrict um, nonprofits, uh, you, know, uh, you know, NGOs. They can restrict uh, uh, scholars they don't like. Um, they they can uh, they can really uh, do things that are uh, make it very very difficult to bring discordant thoughts um, into the minds of, of the ordinary Chinese. And um, and so you're really seeing the creation of a new form of urbanism uh, that is, I think, fright. Uh, you know, quite frightening. And I think something that, um, unfortunately, I think a lot of American tech companies see as a great opportunity.
1: It sounds almost like China, I mean, w- with the growing middle class and the clamping down on personal freedom uh, and the whole dependence on a rapidly expanding economy, I mean, it sounds like they're kind of setting themselves up for a revolution, as it were. Is, is there, I mean, I've heard this, but is, is there a possibility of such a thing happening? I well, mean, the, some of the
2: people, and again, I, I think Lee Sun would be the best one to talk to about this, but where she suggests that um, if there's a revolution, it's probably going to come from the bottom, from the people who are at the bottom, and then those people at the universities. Like there are now these Marxist study groups at, at, at Chinese universities who the government of a Marxist country discourages because you know they, they're, they're saying, well, look, this is what the People's Republic was was set up to do, and this is the world that you're living in, which is if you're a peasant born in a in a small town somewhere, yes, is life better than it was 50 years ago? Certainly. You know, people aren't starving to death and things like that uh, like they were then. but your chance of ascending into the middle, much less the upper classes, are pretty limited at this stage of the game. And, uh, you know, we have these problems, too. Um, um, you know, that's why I, I just finished a book about the return of feudalism. So, I, I mean, I think this is a global problem. But China, because it's married to an authoritarian state with essentially no restraints. I mean, they really can do anything they want. Um, I mean, look, they're arresting, you know, Canadians, um, you know, because, uh, you know, they're in they're in a spat with Canada. That's very, very, very scary. Now, where I think, you know, you mentioned China's economy. I think China's economy is much more vulnerable than people think. Um, I'm not a fan of President Trump, but uh, I think uh, a lot of people, whether they're they're pro Trump or not, understands that somebody's got to call the bluff at some point. We just can't keep exporting every, uh, uh, you know, all our capital, and more importantly, buying all the, our products from China, having them replace domestic industry. Uh, by the way, that's not only a problem for us, it's a problem for Mexico, it's a problem for Europe. Um, but, but I think their economy is, is vulnerable because um, uh, the, uh, you know, first of all, wages have r- risen, it's gotten expensive, their workforce, as we discussed, is getting smaller. Um, and you know the young Chinese, I don't think are going to w- be willing to work the way their their fathers were. This I wrote about this in, in Japan back in the '80s. Um, I knew enough young Ch- uh, Japanese to know they weren't going to work the way their parents did. They're growing up wealthy. They're growing up comfortable. They're not going to work those eighty, ninety hour weeks that even my generation in Japan uh, worked. And so I think that you're going to see um, you're going to see a lot of strains. Um, there are also, um, throughout Southeast Asia, um, a lot of concern about China. I mean, our best friends are probably the Vietnamese because they're they're quite scared. I just came back from Australia uh, last week, and, you know, the Australians, I mean, on the one hand, they welcome the money from China and the investment and all that, but they're scared. They're scared. So there are a lot of countries who, if the United States in particular, and maybe some way the EU prove that they could stand up and ally themselves with India and Japan and um, Southeast Asia, I think China's world domination may have to be put on hold. But but again, it's going to take people's um, will to, to fight back against it, um, and it's going to be a real race because the there are lots of things that, that China has done and done brilliantly that now can be... Uh, Answered with AI, with automation, with with um, with rational organization of our companies, um, with alliances that we could make with 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 our partners in Mexico and elsewhere, that we could really really make a, a counteraction. I mean, we basically have rolled over and let the Chinese do whatever they want. And if if we want if we that continues, I think the the the, uh, the Chinese uh, ascendancy will continue. But there are so many contradictions the demographic contradictions, the fact that when I talked to my young Chinese friends, um, they're they're not communists. They don't believe in this stuff. Um, And then I I remember not on my last trip, but the trip before, uh, Shenzhen was setting up a – they wanted to compete with Hong Kong as a service sector economy. And uh, I, I asked an impolite question, which was, well, exactly how am I supposed to compete in a global economy when I don't have
1: access to the Wall Street Journal. Excellent question. China, dream or nightmare? Uh, Joel, uh, thanks so much for coming. Um, Don't forget to check out Joel Kotkin's work on cityjournal.org. We'd also love to hear your comments about today's episode on Twitter at cityjournal, hashtag 10blocks. Lastly, if you like our show and want to hear more of it, please leave ratings and reviews on iTunes. This is your host, Seth Barron. Joel, thanks so much for joining us. Thank
0: you. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.